Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comics, fiction, and film. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a look inside The Long Box of Darkness. Welcome, constant listeners, to the nocturnal embrace of the long box of darkness, where the moon is forever full and the howls in the night never cease. I'm your guide, Herm, on this eerie expedition through today's topic, and you guessed it, we'll be talking werewolves. That's right. Uh, We'll be sinking our teeth into tales of cursed transformations, dark family legacies, and uh, the beast within us all. After all, this episode is slated to fall on Werewolf Wednesday, and uh, that's the next best thing to Halloween, I'm sure you'd agree. And I guess I'm also still in my post-Halloween blues. I can't believe we have to wait another year to get to October. But Werewolf Wednesday will definitely be there to soothe the soul. Um, And I'm looking forward to discussing some lycanthropic horror treats with you. Now, we've done werewolves before, way back when, maybe two or three years ago, we discussed an EC Comics tale by The Fright of the Silvery Moon, penciled by the great Jack Davis. I've also spoken about Eduardo Risso and Brian Azzarello's Moonshine werewolf epic from Vertigo, or from Image, I should say. That's from Image Comics. Uh, Apologies. But this time around, we'll be looking at a classic from the 1970s, straight from the Marvel horror treasure vault. And then, of course, we'll be uh, focusing on cinematic terror as well, over on our Cineplex of Terror chapter. We'll also be looking at a classic weird fiction fantasy masterpiece, dark fantasy, definitely, which has some werewolfery in there, if that's a term. But let's get to our comic book segment it came from the long box which has its own title this week uh, when the moon is full and bright so what are we going to be discussing well we'll be talking that classic horror character straight from the uh, minds of jerry conway roy thomas a little bit of stanley in there as well mike plug oh and some genie thomas as well roy's wife at the time. And uh, the character, of course, is the werewolf by night, (laughs) Jack Russell himself, weirdly named protagonist of the series Jack Russell, (laughs) very canine. And of course, the series itself has a weird name, Werewolf by Night. Why does it have to have the by night uh, part tagged on? I mean, when else would you transform into a werewolf? But still, that was uh, all Stanley's doing originally, apparently the series was going to be called I Werewolf, but Stan changed it to Werewolf by Night. He didn't like the way uh, the first title sounded. Eventually DC would uh, come along and have an I Vampire series, and that sounded just fine from the House of Mystery, but uh, Stan wasn't a fan. <laughs> so he opted for uh, Werewolf by Night. Uh, but still, uh, it became a classic series, a cult favorite, and... You might be familiar with the character if you've never read the comics 
from the 2022 Disney uh, Marvel TV special, the special they did, um, which featured the character in black and white as a monster hunter. And Man-Thing, the classic swamp muck monster from Marvel, Man-Thing made an appearance in there. It was amazing. They also recently released a color version. I'm not a big fan of the color version. The black and white is where it's at, but uh, definitely worth checking out both of those if you're into Marvel horror. Right, so let's talk some more about the genesis of Marvel's Werewolf by Night. So uh, I will start with a quick origin story, how I came to the title. I don't really remember uh, where I picked up my first issues of Werewolf by Night because it might have, you know, come along in my uh, black long box that was gifted to me by my uncle. I'm not sure. It might not have happened. I might have picked them up at flea markets or something. Uh, but it happened during those early days when I was still a kindergartner going on onto first grade, somewhere around there. I was six, seven years old. I only had three issues of Werewolf by Night. And I remember them distinctly because I read them over and over again. Read them to tatters. Uh, issue number six, Carnival of Fear, uh, featured a classic cover of uh, the werewolf in a cage, um, surrounded by these uh, rubberneckers or gulpers, um, this turban swami <laughs> introducing him to the onlookers and to the readers. It's a great cover. And then uh, uh, issue number 12, which has this classic werewolf as the backseat driver trope. <laughs> Jack Russell transforms into a werewolf in the back of a seat, uh, of a car. And then this couple stares at him while we see the werewolf's face reflected in the rearview mirror. Classic cover too. And then finally, uh, issue number 28. That was one of my childhood issues as well. Um, the cover features the diabolical Dr. Glitter Knight attacking um, Jack Russell while an appropriately uh, alluring beauty sprawls in the background, ready to be saved. Well, either by Dr. Glitter Knight or by the werewolf on the cover. Back then, I couldn't tell who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. In fact, I didn't know what the story was with Werewolf by Night because I didn't have a complete run until much later in my life. I managed to pick up a couple more issues as a teenager in back issue bins, but then eventually the entire series uh, was collected in an omnibus, and that's how I read uh, the complete story. So that took a while for me to get through. And of course, because Omnibi are notoriously difficult to lug around, uh, uncomfortable reading experience to say the least, I got rid of that Omnibus. And then I read the series for a second time around when they released some paperback collections, three of them, three Marvel collections. That was recently, maybe eight or seven years ago. And then after reading the series for a second time uh, from beginning to end, I got rid of those collections as well because Marvel Masterworks was reprinting the entire Werewolf by Night series. And uh, the first volume's out, which I bought. The second volume slated to draw, or probably already did, was released this October. I better get my hands on that. But the stories that I'll be talking about today are in this first volume of the Marvel Masterworks. And uh, it's the Spotlight Issues in which Werewolf by Night first appeared. Marvel Spotlight, number two from 1972, February of that year, and number three and four 
And after that, of course, uh, the character's popularity proved uh, so great that he got his own title. And uh, Werewolf by Night number one debuted. Uh, so, uh, but we won't get into those issues yet. Maybe later down the line, once I um, come up with a part two of this episode. But for now, we'll just be talking the spotlight issues. All right. So now that was my origin story with Werewolf by Night. But uh, what about um, how Marvel uh, first uh, introduced him to the world? Well, of course, his uh, appearance predates the iconic Marvel horror characters uh, from Tomb of Dracula, Dracula himself, and the Frankenstein monster, since uh, he, Jack Russell, debuted in 1972, uh, February 1972. Tomb of Dracula only um, came around in April of that year. And of course, uh, the creation of the character came amidst a significant shift in the comics code, which had recently relaxed its uh, stringent guidelines. Uh, paving the way for supernatural characters to grace the pages of comic books once again. So this renaissance of horror-themed narrative saw the inception of Werewolf by Night um, uh, at the behest of Stan Lee. But then Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, they uh, fleshed out the character along with the masterful penciler Mike Plug, which is one of my all-time, he's one of my all-time favorite uh, horror uh, pencilers right up there with Bernie Wrightson and Tom Sutton and the rest, and Richard Corbin. So uh, with Mike Plug at the artistic helm, uh, we got some evocative illustrations. Um, he His art really complemented all the narrative intricacies as well by the writers. And it created a story that resonated with all the readers at that time, um, all the horror fans. It explored the dichotomy of man and monster uh, through the lens of this troubled life of Jack Russell. Uh, so it not only expanded the horizons of horror and comics, but also contributed to the broader Marvel universe. For instance, it introduced the Darkhold, which is Marvel's version of H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon, um, this an ancient tome of malevolent power. And uh, so Werewolf by Night, his origin is tied to the Darkhold. And, um, of course, there were also the requisite superhero cameos. He teamed up with Spider-Man, um, Iron Man, lots of other characters. Moon Knight was introduced in the pages of Werewolf by Night, later by Doug Munch and Don Perlin. Uh, so, um, essentially, though, even after being firmly enmeshed in the Marvel Universe, Werewolf by Night was still rooted in the horror genre. It explored the primal fears, you know, that haunt that haunt us, that haunt the human psyche. But it still echoed the eternal struggle between beast and man. And it did this through this lens of horror. So it unfolds a narrative that is human, but also monstrous, kind of reflects the duality that resides within us all. So that's, I guess, why it proved so popular. Now, let's get into the first appearance of Werewolf by Night in Marvel Spotlight number two. And this was written by... Um, uh, Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, Jeannie Thomas, and of course, penciled by Mike Plug. And the tale is called Night of Full Moon, Night of Fear. So picture the dark alleyways of Los Angeles, where a prowling mugger meets his fate at the hands of a snarling werewolf, only to be interrupted by a motorcycle cop who then uh, 
shoots the werewolf, grazes him, and the werewolf manages to escape. Come dawn, though, we meet young Jack Russell, who wakes up with memories of being a werewolf uh, the night before, and he's got the bullet wound to prove that it wasn't just a dream. Now, it's Jack's 18th birthday, uh, a day that's marred by familial tensions and a disturbing transformation, again, that very night, into a werewolf. So Jack's night of terrors leads him to a beach house. He confronts a guard dog. (laughs) Things don't go well for that poor dog. And uh, he howls up at the moon, which every werewolf character has to do to be initiated into werewolf stardom. You you have to have the appropriate panel of uh, werewolf howling up at the moon. By morning, though, tragedy strikes again when Jack's mother is critically injured in a car accident. So at her deathbed, Jack learns of the curse rooted in his bloodline, a legacy of lycanthropy stretching back to his real father, a baron who was turned into a werewolf in, get this, Transylvania. (laughs) That's right. It, It goes back to Transylvania as well, folks. So as the moon beckons again, Jack, uh, once more a werewolf, overhears a sinister plot, his stepfather's involvement in his mother's accident. In a warehouse showdown with his stepfather, he confronts the truth, uh, but a deathbed promise to his mother stays his vengeful claws from taking the life of his uh, evil stepfather. (laughs) twist on the Cinderella trope is is ridiculous but fun and then with a howl of anguish Jack disappears into the night a cursed creature caught between the form of man and monster forevermore so that's just the synopsis of Marvel Spotlight number two a little bit of spoilers in there sorry readers I apologize for that but there's a lot that I left out um, still worth picking up and just gushing over the art and the narrative intricacies that I didn't mention uh, so yeah, beware. There's going to be some a little bit of spoilers uh, come spotlight issue number two, uh, three, and four. But uh, I'll try to keep it at a minimum. All right. So in Marvel Spotlight number three, which is titled "The Thing in the Cellar," you've got Jack after a tumultuous night as a werewolf, taken in by at first the kindly Nathan Timley, who's a psychologist linked to Jack's stepfather, but then. Nathan traps him and his wife, Andrea, reveals that they're obsessed with obtaining this ancient mystical tome, the Darkhold, uh, which we mentioned. Uh, This book was once owned by Jack's father, uh, and now Jack faces the wrath of uh, Andrea and Nathan, uh, since he can't come up with the goods, and also their malformed uh, gigantic servant Craig, spelt with a K. <laughs> so just imagine one of the mutated, uh, you know, monsters or people from Wes Craven's *The Hills of Eyes*, one of the bulkier ones, and you'll you you'll kind of know what Craig looks like. And of course, I'll be posting images of these comics that I'm discussing on DarkLongbox.com, our podcast addendum article. Look for that at DarkLongbox.com. Right, so uh, there's a violent storm, some transformations happening. Craig is killed uh, by a lightning strike. <laughs> Andrea's attempts to harness the Darkhold's magic leads to her own demise. 
Jack is left to ponder the true power of the dark hold. Um, overall, a fantastic uh, issue. And some great monster-on-monster action in there between Craig and the werewolf. So spotlight number four, the final issue we'll be talking about is uh, kind of like a dark twist of occult encounters and bizarrely property disputes. Uh, Jack Russell teams up with uh, a man called Buck Cowan. He's an occult-obsessed writer. And this is all to recover the dark hold. Uh, after all, Jack now knows that his origin is tied to this uh, terrifying tome. And uh, they go on a sneaky yacht heist, <laughs> but uh, encounter some complications when Jack's stepfather interferes. Jack is imprisoned on this island of horrors. Uh, he faces off against Marlene Blackgar and her twisted science experiments. Uh, he ends up liberating some of them in a monstrous jailbreak. <laughs> and then as the moonlight transforms him, the werewolf discovers Marlene Blackgar's stony secret, uh, ultimately becoming another garden statue in her collection of uh, petrified uh, prisoners. So I guess some family legacies, legacies really are set in stone, right, listeners? Um, so you'll have to read it to believe it, really, because this is some great comic booking. And um, yeah, it's available as, like I said, the Marvel Masterworks volume, but you can also read it on the Marvel app or Kindle Comixology, whatever you prefer. The back issues will be hard to find simply because it is his first appearance. And um, But there are ways to get them. If you haven't read them yet, do so. So I guess that'll wrap up our comic book coverage for this week, but don't go away, listeners. We're not done talking werewolves yet. We've still got our Cineplex of Terror coming up, and uh, that will commence right after this trailer, which I'm going to play for you right now. So don't go away. Those things out there are real. If they're real, what else is real? You may never get another night's sleep as long as you live. Now, as of this moment, as far as we're concerned, we are 50k behind enemy lines. Now expect nothing less than gratuitous violence from the lot of you. Every year, more and more people come through here. Every once in a while, they don't come back. Captain, you've got to get me out of here. Looks like they got hit hard and fast. Every magazine is full. From here on in, the exercise is over. Exactly what is it we're fighting against? Lycanthropes. That's werewolves to you and me. You came here because of them, right? This was supposed to be a routine training exercise, and that's all. Quick survival. Lives not running and hiding. Salvage whatever weapons you can find and stand to. Shut down the generator. Why would they do that? Because they can see in the dark. And you're afraid of it. There was only supposed to be one! You tore them to pieces! This in front of my eyes! Honestly. What are our chances? So, if little Red Riding Hood should show up with a bazooka and a bad attitude, I expect you to tin the bitch. 
bloody loving this, aren't you? Terry, while you're at it, stick the kettle on. Could all do with the brew. We're back, constant listeners, and as you might have guessed from the trailer, we'll be talking Dog Soldiers, uh, Neil Marshall's classic British horror movie. Uh, it carved a savage path in 2002 when it was released, uh, marinated the screen in a gruesome blend of gore. Uh, there's some gallows humor in there, a distinctively British brand of uh, gritty camaraderie. And uh, I've got a bit of history with this film too. I remember my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, but she left for a two-year sabbatical in Australia. And I was already a teacher in Taiwan where we had met. I was staying in Taiwan. Of course, I went to visit her a couple of times in Oz, but um, as a kind of a farewell parting gift, she uh, got me some uh, renting credits at this uh, video store, this uh, Taiwanese video store, um, which was chock full of movies. So I had like something like, I don't know, 300 credits, which means I could rent more than 30 movies. Uh, probably even more than that, but um, I made use of it and I went on a horror binge. One of the movies I rented was Dog Soldiers. I never saw it in theaters. The first time I saw it was somewhere around 2006, 2007, when I rented it and it blew my mind. It was amazing. Well, it instantly became one of my top five favorite werewolf films. So as you know, this movie unveils a kind of a narrative through this desperate struggle of a group of British soldiers, uh, they find themselves pitted against a pack of ruthless werewolves in Scotland's dense, eerie woods. <laughs> Very chilling. And um, there will be some spoilers when I discuss the synopsis and the movie. So if you haven't seen it yet, go see it. Come back, listen to the episode. It'll be worth your time, I hope. Um so these British soldiers, they, they're pitted against a pack of ruthless werewolves, um, as I mentioned. So the primal fear of the unknown mingled with brutal reality of being hunted, the hunter becoming the hunted, that classic trope, it sort of sets the stage for this uh, chilling dance of death. Now, the core strength of the movie lies in the, the unyielding pace and, of course, the raw visual and visceral aesthetic, and also the isolation of the Scottish Highlands uh, adds to the terror, but it still manages to capture the desolate beauty of um, that the, the, that area. It sort of starkly paints the contrast to, uh, you know, of the savage violence juxtaposed with this beauty, uh, but it's sometimes also underneath a cloak of darkness. So there are some dark parts where you you don't really see what's happening, but your imagination fills in the gaps that works to its advantage. Uh, the camera, though, definitely navigates through this dense wood wooded area, and the cramp claustrophobia of this entire movie is, is really something to be experienced. So you constantly feel like you, you've got this werewolf's breath on your neck. You never know what's going to happen. You never know when a claw is going to come slashing out of the darkness, just ripping your jugular to shreds. I love it. All right, so here's the brief synopsis. Um, Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers from 2002. Uh, a harrowing narrative, of course. Uh, the plot kicks into gear 
uh, with a routine training mission, a band of soldiers are dropped into the woods for what they believe is just an exercise for a special ops squad. So these guys are badasses, make no mistake. Um, but as dusk descends, a chilling howl shatters the stillness of the forest, heralding the terror that lurks in the shadows. The soldiers then stumble upon the remains of a special ops squad whose bodies have been savagely torn apart with only one survivor, Captain Ryan, played by Liam Cunningham, who is severely injured and in a state of shock. So then by nightfall, the true nature of their foe is revealed. A pack of monstrous werewolves with a bloodthirst <laughs> that knows no bounds. So the soldiers, um, now be they became the hunted, they're forced to retreat to this abandoned farmhouse. And the darkness of the night becomes their very own personal shroud of terror, although it still manages to be a fragile haven as the werewolves lay siege to them throughout the night. So the night drags on, bonds of brotherhood are tested, farmhouse turns into a battleground, every inch is contested by claw and bullet. The soldiers are at the end bereft of hope, but they stand resolute, their uh, camaraderie, um, sort of a flicker of humanity in this in the face of this monstrous savagery. So uh, really epic stuff. Um, now, amidst the chaos, uh, Captain Ryan turns out to be the center of, uh, well, the plot, really, because uh, the werewolf activity is sort of tied to him. So there's a mystery. If you haven't seen it, I won't spoil too much, but it has a great payoff. Eventually, dawn edges closer, the dwindling band of soldiers must muster their last shreds of valor to make a final stand. And of course, it culminates in a savage ballet of blood and bullets and bravery <laughs> under this pale light of a cursed moon. So Neil Marshall's direction here, really the standout, uh, the, the reason why the movie is such a success. Also the acting by many of the actors, uh, Sean Pertwee, Kevin McKidd, they're in there. Um, but I, I think it's Marshall's direction, really. Uh, it harkens back to elemental horror folklore. He injects some fresh vitality into the werewolf subgenre. He manages to sort of balance the gore fest with a generous dose of humor. I'd say sardonic humor at most times. And he often delivers these uh, moments in a in the thick of a bloody skirmish. <laughs> There's some layers of human warmth added to the cold-blooded slaughter. It's not all gore and blood and guts. And um, the werewolves themselves, they look pretty horrific. They're a horrific spectacle uh, portrayed through these practical effects. Not a lot of CGI in here, folks, which is what I like. Uh, and they exude a kind of tactile realism, I'd say. Um, that's often lost these days in the CGI saturated genre pieces. So their design is a blend of this grotesque and fearsome monster. And they've got this predatory agility to them as well. So they're formidable adversaries, um, which I guess you'd have to be to take out a black ops squad. <laughs> and then uh, one of the notable elements in this film um, is the avoidance of romanticizing the werewolf curse, which I love. Uh, that's a common trope. Now, it's not, you know, followed here by Neil Marshall at all. So instead, he dives headlong into the nightmarish reality 
of being hunted by creatures who just want to feed, just want to rip you apart and uh, grind your bones to powder, <laughs> suck the marrow from your bones, probably. That's more appropriate. Uh, or inappropriate if you're the victim. <laughs> so it dives headlong into this nightmarish uh, world, really. And the werewolves are not at all tragic figures. They're these monstrous predators. They evoke a sense of dread, primal, unrelenting, all that kind of stuff. It's great. And then the score itself is fantastic too. It really sets the mood. Uh, done by Mark Thomas. It's sort of a brooding undercurrent to this unfolding horror. Uh, with some militaristic beats as well mingled in in there. And then some eerie silences echoes the isolation of this wilderness really nicely. Uh, it amplifies tension, uh, leads to a kind of a crescendo of violence that is uh, exhilarating at the end there. Um, now, uh, it's not a perfect movie on the downside. Um, some people that I've spoken to, some friends of mine, some horror fans, they find the movie uh you know there's some scenes that where you can really see the budget constraints really coming into play there so special effects are not always on point uh but for me personally that doesn't matter but i've i've heard that that this is a quibble among my horror uh contemporaries really but uh, in conclusion i'd say dog soldiers a ferocious entry into werewolf lore worth watching um Really a movie that I find myself returning to again and again. It's a testament to the power of practical effects, at least in my mind. Obviously there, like I mentioned, there has been some people critical of the movie's effects, but I'm not one of them. There's a lot of cohesive storytelling, well-chosen cast. Uh, it leaves a bloody imprint on the horror genre in my mind. So howlingly good time for those of you with a stomach for gore. But there's some dark adventure too. So uh, definitely something that should be watched if you haven't sampled it yet. All right. That's our Cineplex of Terror chapter wrapped up. Uh, nice as you please. And now our final chapter looms. The Book Nook of Doom. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, I'm not going to be taking a break. I'm not going to slow down. You guys will just have to. Uh, power on through with me here. So let's see what we've got cooking in the Book Nook of Doom. All right. The title we'll be discussing is a classic from uh, the fantasy, dark fantasy genre. It's also considered to be a horror novel. Um, it's made its way onto quite a few masterworks of fantasy lists. Uh, and it is... Jack Williamson's Tale of Darkness called Darker Than You Think. And uh, this was published in 1948, uh, based off of a novella that Jack Williamson had previously written. Uh, it's a fantastic story. One of my favorite uh, horror novels of all time. How did I happen upon this book? Just to give you a bit of a, my history with it. I was a university student somewhere around, I think it was 1996 or 1997, back in South Africa, uh, before I had moved to uh, the UK, um, and I was doing my literature degree. I was in the library more often than not, uh, and I, you know, sometimes I would look for some light reading <laughs> rather than just the the hefty tomes on, you know, postmodernist literature and all of that. So I would 
Just browse the stacks, and I came upon David Pringle's uh, 100 Masterworks of Fantasy. Uh, now, this book has long been out of print, but it's a worthy read. You might find it as a Kindle file. Uh, I think it, it's available as a Kindle um, edition. And it contained 100 fantasy masterworks, among them stuff like Lord of the Rings, the Gast trilogy from Mervyn Peake, um, all of those, the, those good uh, things that you can find in the fantasy genre. But it also had a fair bit of horror. I remember Stephen King's Salem's Lot was in there. Uh, the Shining, um, a couple of other uh, more horror-themed, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, for instance, as well, by Shirley Jackson. And one of the uh, entries on the list was, in fact, Jack Williams's Darker Than You Think. So I hunted down most of the novels I could find from that uh, book. Eventually, I got a copy of uh, Jack Williams's classic, and I read it and loved it and reread it, and I've probably read it more than... A dozen times since. So what is it about? Well, this tale is fantastic. Now this spoiler warning is going to be more pronounced, this warning here, because you need to, if you haven't read this book, you need to read it before listening to this segment. It's that good. It's amazing. You don't want to um, have the surprises and twists and turns in this book spoiled for you. So a uh, fair warning. Um, Basically, what it is about, it is a, a blend of horror and fantasy, a narrative that digs deep into the human psyche. It unearths, unearths these primal instincts that we've spoken about before uh, in the previous segments. Uh, so meticulously crafted narrative, uh, also exploring the line between man and monster, and it delivers a thrilling tale. So the synopsis is as follows. Uh, the protagonist is one Will Barbie. He's a journalist. He finds himself plunged into this world of supernatural terror and ancient evil when he meets the alluring uh, lady love. Uh, well, she will become his uh, love interest during the novel, uh, April Bell, who sort of uh, introduces him to this world of witchcraft and uh, supernatural menace. And um, uh, the adventure begins with the return of Will's old uh, mentor, an archaeologist called Dr. Mondrick. Uh, he returns from an expedition from Mongolia uh, with some mysterious finds that he unearthed in the Alashan Desert. Um, uh, and what these finds essentially entail um, is this the evidence that once this ancient prehistoric race of were-beings existed, and they might still exist, uh, living secretly among humans and they have this ability to transform into various animals more often than not wolves and the last living descendant of this race is identified uh, in the novel and that he's called well not the last living descendant i guess but he's the most important the most significant one the child of night so april she essentially is a witch she's a witch woman she's one of this where these where folk and she has identified the child of night and she need, needs Will Barbie's help. And she uses her hold over him, which is sexual at first, but later on becomes much more, becomes more like a spiritual bond between them. She uses that to uh, draft him into her cause, which is to uh, uncover whatever else Dr. Mondrake brought back from the desert, which seems to be some kind of a weapon to use against the werefolk. 
Now, as the narrative unfolds, Barbie discovers that he too is a descendant of this ancient were folk. He, the were people, he has the abilities that they have, but to a much greater degree. And um, his power is unlocked by April's tutelage as they uh, embark on this mission to stop Dr. Mondrick and his group of sort of a Dracula-esque uh, Van Helsing, uh, you know, hunters, which Mondrick has assembled from academia and from various walks of life. They have to confront them in order to stop them from finally and ultimately destroying the were people. Fantastic novel, worth, worth a read. Now, the reason why I love it so much is it sort of um, plays around with the werewolf genre a little bit in that it explains that all werewolves are essentially are these witch folk from from uh, ancient legends and they've uh, managed to embed themselves into our nightmares because at one point in time they ruled over us and we were their their food <laughs> their slaves and what i like about the the way werewolfery or lycanthropy i shouldn't use that term werewolfery is presented in this novel is in the way that they utilize it for instance if you're uh, a human and you bear the dark gift of witchcraft or this wear power, you essentially at night, you come into your power and you fall asleep and you send your, your essence, your chi, your spirit, your soul, whatever you want to call it. You send this power out of yourself. It, it, it essentially creates another body and that body can be molded. That body is perfect. Um, so your, your real body becomes a husk, uh, which you need to stash somewhere safe. Uh, because of course that is still, uh, you know, uh, vulnerable while you are now out in your perfect form hunting around. And while in the spiritual form, the spirit form, uh, which is a physical form though, you can assume various shapes. And at one point in time, of course, there's lots of wolves running around. Will becomes a wolf. April, uh, that's one of her favorite forms. Uh, but you can become snakes. You can become a python. You can become a saber-toothed tiger, lots of different things. So whatever your, your imagination can come up with. But animal forms are mostly preferable. And then in this form, you are nigh invulnerable, except to the weapons that Dr. Mondrick apparently uncovered from the desert. And uh, you could also manipulate, uh, psionically manipulate uh, objects within your range. For instance, you can pass through walls, uh, become a mist shift through the cracks in doors and windows and so forth. And you can also have various other psychic powers um, sort of related to voodoo. You can use totems, um, all kinds of magical paraphernalia that comes with your powers that April indeed is an expert at. So a fantastic novel, one of the classics. I recently did a blog post on it. If you want to check that out, I'll link it in the podcast addendum post on darklongbox.com. If you want to check out the full review I did on the novel, uh, it will be there. And there you have it, constant listeners. The hair-raising tale of werewolves that we had today has come to an end. I hope you've enjoyed the spine-tingling journey into the world of lycanthropy. Uh, but before we say farewell, I do have a few uh, chilling requests for you. As fellow horror enthusiasts, first and foremost, if you've found this episode as hair-raisingly captivating um, as I hope you have, 
I implore you to spread the terror by sharing this episode with your fellow horror, fan, horror fans on social media. It would be greatly appreciated and help the long box of darkness in the process to grow. Um, now, and for all you brave souls out there who wish to communicate with us, you can do so by sending your thoughts and comments to contact at darklongbox.com. That's contact at darklongbox.com. We read all the emails and we'll even feature them on the show. Criticism is welcome. I'm always trying to improve. Um, and if you do manage to send us um, anything that you wish pr to promote, of course, I will promote that on the show. You can do so as well by, if it's horror related or fantasy related or sci-fi related, just drop us a line at contact at darklongbox.com with the subject line feature. And then I will feature your content if I deem it appropriate. <laughs> so um, that's not all though. In our pursuit uh, of the extraordinary, we also have a special incentive for those of you who want to venture further into the shadows. If you visit the blog at darklongbox.com, you'll see there is the option to subscribe to our newsletter. Now, if you subscribe to our newsletter, we'll send you monthly free horror content, discussions, articles, digital horror art, uh, quotes. Um, there'll be lots of fun uh, trivia and, of course, some exclusives to you if you do subscribe to the newsletter of darkness to be delivered to your very own inbox of darkness if you subscribe to it on the blog. Um, we'll also give you a thunderous shout out, of course, and you can also have yourself featured in the newsletter in the same way by sending an email to contact at darklongbox.com. Then I'll link to your social media and to your website or to your podcast and feature you in the newsletter if it is science fiction, fantasy, or horror-based. So thanks for tuning in once again, listeners. I really appreciate you listening to The Long Box of Darkness. Hope you got some value from this episode and some good recommendations or just an overview of your previous favorites. <laughs> um, so with that, this is Herm, and I'm saying goodbye, signing off. And uh, remember to keep your silver canes, silver-handled canes, handy. Um, I'm not an advocate of guns, so I won't say keep your silver bullets handy, but, you know, maybe silver tableware at least. So, this is Long Bus of Darkness saying goodnight. Thanks for listening once again, and sweet screams to you all until we meet again. Bye-bye.